uh, Luke chapter 19 as we continue our study on Jesus' resolve to go to the cross and the journey uh, that transpired between chapter 9, verse 51, where it says that Jesus was resolved to, to go to Jerusalem uh, and to suffer there and to die for us to the end of uh, Luke's gospel, which is the resurrection. And so we're along the way with Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be in the town of Jericho, which is just a few miles down the street from Jerusalem as Jesus makes his way. 76 years ago today, on March the 18th, in 1942, one of the most famous statements of the Second World War was spoken by that gentleman you see on the screen, General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, between December 7th, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and the middle of March, the war in the Pacific went terribly for the Americans. They lost every battle, whether it was on land or on sea or on in the air. Uh, they were driven back. They were driven out. Uh, most importantly, out of the Philippines, where General, General MacArthur had his headquarters. Uh, some of us have read about, uh, some of us are old enough some of us to remember uh, the Bataan Death March. And, and that transpired when uh, Roosevelt knew that the Philippines were lost and told MacArthur he had to get out. And from Australia, 76 years ago today, General Douglas MacArthur, in the face of months of defeat and hopelessness, said, I shall return. Now, that was a bold statement for him to make, given the circumstances. That was, that was an incredible statement for him to make, given the circumstances, for several reasons. One is, is the Americans were losing and losing badly, and there wasn't any sign that it was going to turn around in the immediate future. Secondly, General MacArthur, although he kind of thought he confused himself with God occasionally, he, he was a person who had to take orders from the president. And if the president didn't want to go back to the Philippines, then General MacArthur wasn't going to go back to the Philippines. So you have this, this statement of, of great inspiration, right? I mean, you hear, we shall, I shall return. That gives you hope for a promise, and, and it gets you fired up to want to fight harder. But it's an incredible statement that might just not be true. And yet, 936 days later, on October the 20th, 1944, Douglas MacArthur waited onto shore, under the Philippines, and he said kind of the, the second most famous statement, which is, I have returned. Right? Now, that's amazing that that happened. It took a lot of lives, took a lot of, a lot of sacrifice, uh, but his, his statement was valid. He, it, it happened. We're going to look at a statement that Jesus makes this morning in, in Luke's gospel that is even more remarkable. Not in the sense of, you know, you stand back and you're amazed at, oh my goodness, how could such words be put together? But could that possibly be true? Is what Jesus actually claiming, if that's true, it literally changes everything. This is an incredible statement. And the question we want to ask this morning is, is there credibility in this statement? Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, hear the word of God. Speaking about Jesus, says he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacche there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down. And received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the profound statement that Jesus utters in this passage. Lord, I pray that we would not just look at this as uh, another story of something in the life of Jesus, but that we would rather understand the gravity, that we would appreciate what is at stake, uh, that our very soul is being spoken of in this passage. Jesus was not just talking to Zacchaeus, he was talking to every person in, that, in this room today, and he still is talking to each one of us. So, Father, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to apply that which Jesus is saying. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to what you want us to learn, to understand, and apply this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon in a sentence is uh, a sentence and then a question. Jesus claimed that his mission was to seek and to save the lost. Does this statement have any credibility? Right? So that, that, that's a very bold statement. That's a very strong statement that Jesus is making there. And so we want to unpack that this morning and see if it's actually true. Because if it is, then you and I have some decisions to make. Uh, you and I have some important things to consider, things with which to wrestle if what Jesus is saying there is actually fundamentally true. I want to suggest this morning that what this text says is that the statement only holds credibility if three things are true. The first is that if Jesus really did come from God, if Jesus came from God, then there's strength in his words that are beyond human strength. They're beyond Douglas MacArthur or any president or king that's ever lived. If these are, these are the words of God, then we've got to listen very carefully. So this statement has credibility if Jesus actually came from God. Secondly, if it's true that man is genuinely lost and beyond self-repair, beyond the ability to save himself or herself. If humanity is, is truly lost. I remember reading a, a French author one time and he said, I'm not sure what God's beef is with me. I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, I don't think that, that I do that much wrong. God ought to be pretty pleased with me. I don't know what he could possibly have against me. Well, if man is lost, then Jesus' statement holds credibility. And thirdly, it only holds credibility if Jesus is resolved to bring grace, to deal with our lostness in a way that is actually restorative. It actually puts us in a better place than where we were when we began. So let's look at those three statements as we go through the text. Is Jesus genuinely from God? Well, in order to, to begin to unpack this, let's go to the very end of the passage. Let's look at verse 10 and the title or the name that Jesus gives to himself. Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking the third person, but he's talking about himself. And he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, is that just a cool name that Jesus made up for himself? It's like, you know, looked in the mirror one day and said, you look like a son of man. And he just started calling himself that, and everybody kind of picked up on it. Well, I guess that's what he wants. And Luke said, well, that's what he called himself, so I'm going to write it down. No. It has a deeper and richer meaning than that. You go all the way back in the Old Testament to the prophet Daniel. And you read the following words. Daniel says, I saw in the night vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So here comes the Son of Man, and he's presented to God himself. What's going to happen? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. He will have dominion, his dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, this, this title, Son of Man, is given only to one person in all of history, and it's the person who represents the divine nature of God. It is, in fact, God in the flesh. What we're saying, what Jesus is saying, what we're saying this text is saying is that Jesus was preexistent God that he didn't begin his existence when he was born of Mary, but rather he stepped out of eternity and he stepped into humanity and was at the same time fully God and fully man. That's a remarkable statement. For Jesus to claim that he is the one to whom Daniel was speaking when he talked about this one that would be ruler and king of all. So the name would indicate that Jesus is divine. But does does there, uh, is there any proof of this divinity in Jesus's life? Um, what kind of power did Jesus demonstrate that, that his name might actually be a name that represents God? And I would take you back just simply a couple of verses uh, into chapter 18 of Luke at the very end of Luke's uh, chapter 18, where Jesus is on his way into Jericho. When we get to 19, he's actually in town. But as he was coming into town, this is what happened. And I've shortened these verses. I've compressed them a bit. It's a little bit longer, but you'll get the point. Jesus drawing near to Jericho. What happens? A blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Jesus didn't do anything. He just spoke. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he recovered his sight. And all the people gave praise to God. Nobody does something like that if God's power isn't involved. Jesus' life demonstrates the power of God, the power of healing, the power of the remarkable. And this is one of the reasons why, why some scholars want to reject the Gospels. They're like, that just possibly, it could not have happened. I refuse to believe that, that that could actually have happened. Life doesn't work out that way. Well, that's limiting God to, to our humanity. And Jesus claimed and, and demonstrated that he was much, much more than that. But also there's a sense not only of the name and a sense of, of divine power and miraculous power, but there's also a spiritual authority that's spoken to in this passage. Coming back to, to, to our lesson for this morning, look at verse 9. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. Son of Abraham, there's referring to the faith that Abraham had in God. And what Jesus is saying is Zacchaeus is coming to God in faith, and so I declare him saved. Now, that's an amazing statement, right? I could say that all day long if I wanted to. Anthony, I declare you saved. You feel any better? You ought not, right? You ought, you ought to be saying, why on earth did I sit in the front row this morning? That was really a bad mistake. I could say that all day long, but I don't have the spiritual authority to enact that, right? So I could say, you know what? I, let's just bring it down to even simpler terms. Let's, let's say I'm going to declare tomorrow's Green Tree Community Church Day. None of you have to go to work. Everybody sleep in, go to Spencer's, get some coffee, get some breakfast, right? Go, if the weather's nice, go get your garden ready, go work. Don't worry about it. Your boss isn't going to care. It'll be just fine. Just have a great day off. How many of you are actually going to take me at my word and do that? Please don't, right? 
there's a good chance there'll be a little pink line through your name the next day when you come into the office, right? I don't have the authority to declare that, right? Even in my own home, my grandchildren were running around our house a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, stop that. And they smiled and waved as they ran by, right? I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't have a whole lot of spiritual authority. But Jesus here is claiming that he determines who is saved. And he looks at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. What does Jesus see that that makes him make that statement? Well, if you go one verse back further to verse 8, what does Zacchaeus do? Jesus and Zacchaeus have been having lunch, right? And and they've been chatting and and they've been having a heart-to-heart conversation. And and when they get done with that conversation, Luke records that Zacchaeus stands up in front of everybody and says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What happened here is that there is a genuine change of heart. There's a literal spiritual transformation that has taken place from the beginning of lunch to the end of lunch. And Zacchaeus was one man when he started to sit down to lunch, and he was a different man when he got up. What happened was the spiritual authority of Jesus made him a new man transformation, a literal spiritual transformation. Zacchaeus, who only thought about himself, he was a chief tax collector and he was, he was wealthy. He, he was living off the backs of his fellow citizens. He, he was a traitor to his countrymen. He was, he, he was in with the Romans, the occupying army. And, and as we see, we'll, we'll talk more about it in a minute, the, the, the people around him hated and despised him, but that's not who he was when he finished lunch. When he finished lunch, he said, I, I have a new way of thinking. I'm giving half of what I have automatically to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, he's cheated just about everybody, right? I'm going to give him back four times what I've cheated him. Now, the Mosaic law said, the law that Zacchaeus lived under said, if you cheat somebody, you double their money. So if I cheated you out of $50, I would pay you back 100 And Zacchaeus isn't even thinking in terms of what does the law say. Zacchaeus is simply, is simply explaining and exclaiming what's in his heart and the transformation that's taken back. He said, if I stole 50 from you, I'll give you 200. The heart's desire has been completely changed. And and I want to suggest that only God can do this. And that's what this text is saying. And so our first statement, I believe, passes the test. This is only credible if Jesus came from God. And I believe this text shows that very clearly. Secondly, it's only credible if man is lost. Now, we just started to talk about that, but Zacchaeus has a, has a pretty good reputation, and he's worked hard, and he's earned it, right? He, he's really a pretty bad fellow. Look at verse 7. So when they see Jesus, he's going through town. He says, come on, Zach, we're going to your place for lunch. People get upset, and they all get upset. Notice the, the passage there, right? It's not just, you know, a lot of times it'll point out certain groups of people. Get up, everybody's mad, right? Why? He's gone in to be the guest of a sinner. And that word sinner there means he's, this person is actively unclean. They're intentionally doing things against the law of God. They, they know what they're supposed to do and they completely disregard it and they go the opposite direction. Zacchaeus is one who has been a traitor to his fellow countrymen, right? He, he's lived off of their backs. He's stolen from them. He's made himself wealthy by oppressing his own kin and his own crime and his own kind. He, he is rich via treachery. And so there's no question that Zacchaeus is lost. But you may be sitting here this morning and go, well, that's Zacchaeus. That, that certainly isn't me, right? And, and I would probably put myself in that camp too. I mean, I've done some bad stuff, but, but I, haven't, I haven't committed treason. 
against my country. I haven't, I haven't gotten rich off the backs of, uh, of my fellow uh, countrymen, my fellow citizens at, at their expense. I, I think I put in an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. So I'm not really all that lost, am I? Well, let's look at the crowd for just a second because that's where I actually spot myself this morning, right? What does the crowd do? They all collectively grumbled. What were they upset about? They were, they were self-righteously upset that Jesus would associate with someone so bad, meaning that ain't me. I'm a pretty good person. And they saw themselves through a, through a deluded lens that was inaccurate. They had hatred in their hearts. They had self-righteousness in their hearts. They judged both Jesus and Zacchaeus and found them both to be at fault. Zacchaeus clearly was a bad guy. Nobody's arguing that he wasn't. But Jesus is saying, I, I came for bad guys. I came to bring redemption for all who are lost. And the crowd's demonstrating their lostness by their self-righteous attitude towards Zacchaeus and the hatred that's truly in their hearts. Yesterday morning, about this time, a little bit earlier, about an hour earlier than this, I was coming down, I was coming west on Monroe, east on Monroe, and I was coming over here to the office to spend about three or four hours just kind of tidying up and finishing up my sermon and getting ready for today. And as I came down to Monroe, the light was green, and I had the right away to turn right onto Kirkwood Road and then to turn left into our parking lot. And as I was getting ready to turn right, a person on the other side of the intersection who didn't have the right away gunned it and cut in front of me and almost hit me and then sped off down the road. And I just offered a quick prayer blessing to them that they would, <laughs> they would be loved by someone and that they, God wouldn't hold their terrible sin of bad driving against them, right? That's not what happened, right? I got really angry in my heart. I started to say some things, and then I thought, oh, i got to preach tomorrow. I better not say those things as if that actually mattered, right? Clearly, the Bible says what's in my heart doesn't matter if it comes out of my mouth or not. It's already killed me but it showed my despicableness, right? It showed what a bad guy Tom Ricks was because I assumed, right, that that guy was, was rude. I assumed that he wasn't paying attention. I assumed that he thought himself the center of the universe and he could just cut in front of anybody he wanted to. I never, ever gave him the benefit of the doubt, right? What if he had just come from home where he had had, you know, the hundredth fight with his wife and he thought his marriage was over? What if yesterday he'd gone to the doctor and he'd gotten bad news and he just wasn't, aware of his circumstances. See, I would want somebody to give me the benefit of the doubt, but God forbid that I would do that for him. You see what's in my heart, right? And I'm guessing it's in your heart too. And we all need a savior. Man is genuinely lost. Humanity is broken. And it's broken beyond self-repair. And, and make no mistake about it, it's an offense to God. And it's, and it's dangerous to the people around us. Because my hatred can quickly turn into action. My attitude of self-righteousness can quickly turn into gossip and a condemnation and to, and to being judgmental. And your sin can do the very same thing for you. I believe this passage points out beyond a shadow of a doubt that man is lost. So Jesus is from God. Man is lost. But we have one more very important uh, piece to, to consider. And that is, this, this statement's only credible if Jesus is resolved to bring grace. So Jesus is clearly resolved to confront Zacchaeus. Look at, at verse 5, right? When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and get down here. Come on, why? Because I must stay at your house today. Jesus was insistent that he was going to bring mercy to Zacchaeus. 
Now, it doesn't mean he was going to tell Zacchaeus that everything that Zacchaeus was doing in his life was okay. Clearly, Jesus was going to confront Zacchaeus' sin. Clearly, when they sat down at lunch, Jesus probably looked around, and, and this isn't in the Scripture, so this is Tom Rick kind of hypothesizing, but I think it's probably close. Jesus maybe said, boy, Zach, this is a nice place you got here. How'd you come by this house? Did you inherit it from your family? You know, Zacchaeus, I noticed your robe. You have a beautiful, gorgeous robe. I'm looking at how your wife is dressed. My goodness. What do you do for a living, Zach? How'd, how'd you earn your money? Right? I'm sure it got pretty personal pretty quick because you don't get to repentance without dealing with the sin. Right? But once Zacchaeus saw sin and he saw that Jesus was resolved to be merciful, he was transformed. Jesus had to stay at Zacchaeus' house that day. And that attitude and that, 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 that heart of Jesus allowed Zacchaeus to do what? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I'm sure Zacchaeus was, was a bit ashamed. I'm sure Zacchaeus was kind of wondering what Jesus was going to say to him. He, he had heard of Jesus. He had never interacted with him, but he'd heard of Jesus. And I'm sure he felt very uncomfortable. And yet there was something in the voice of Jesus. There was something in, in the look in his eye that drew that drew Zacchaeus, that compelled Zacchaeus towards Jesus. The, the, the name Zacchaeus means man of purity. Isn't that kind of ironic? And, and don't you think that Zacchaeus kind of woke up every morning kind of wondering about that and maybe chuckling a bit to himself in an uneasy manner? And yet he was drawn by the fact that Jesus was resolved to confront him with grace. And so Jesus' attitude and Jesus' action left Zacchaeus a different man, a saved man, a gracious man. And I think what's true of Zacchaeus can be true of every one of us this morning because I think Jesus is resolved. He was resolved to bring redemption to Zacchaeus. But I think he's resolved to bring redemption to every person in this room who will put their faith in him this morning. I think Jesus is resolved to answer the question that's in the heart of every sinner, right? We all have the same question. Maybe we word it a little bit differently. Maybe it, it takes on different language, but it, it's roughly the same thing. The question is, am I loved? Am I significant in, in, any, in any manner? Do I, do I matter to anyone? Is there a place for me to belong? 19th century British novelist George Eliot put it this way. I not only like to be loved, but to be told that I am loved. Now, if you know anything at all about, about English literature, you know anything about George Eliot, you know that George Eliot's real name was Mary Ann Evans. And that she actually wrote under the pen name of George Eliot. You know why she wrote under the pen name of George Eliot? She was asked that and she said, because I want to be accepted as a serious novelist. And if, and, if, and if I wrote under my name, I don't think people would accept a woman as a serious novelist. You hear the longing of her heart. Right? And that's in every one of our hearts. Zacchaeus tamped it down and tried to hold it, suppress it by making himself wealthy and by trying to, to drown his sorrow in all the things that he could collect and the, and the wealth that he could collect. But it's the same question for all of us. Notice what, what Zacchaeus was trying to do uh, in verses 3 and 4, right? He was seeking to see who Jesus was, right? And a kind of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small stature, which means that, you know, if you're standing and you're watching the parade and a shorter person you comes by and they're, and they're your friend, what do you do? You kind of let them up there, right? Nobody was letting Zacchaeus see Jesus. Why? Because they all hated him, right? So he had to climb up in a sycamore tree. Think of, think of how embarrassing that was. A grown man, you know, climbing up in a tree like a little kid because the, his heart compelled him. He couldn't do otherwise because he wanted his brokenness filled. He wanted redemption, even though he probably couldn't even put those words to it right then and there. 
Zacchaeus's question, I believe, is our question this morning. And I hope you've noticed by now that we've actually been working backwards through the text. Has anybody noticed that? That we've actually started at the end and came to the beginning? Um, there's reason for that. I don't normally do that. And if we're in verse 10 and we're going to verse 20, I normally start at 10 and work my way through. But we actually start at the back end and we came to the front because I think the most important thing that's said in this passage is actually in verse 1, other than Jesus' statement that he came to seek and to save the lost. In verse 1, Jesus says this, as he entered Jericho, he was passing through. If you're an underliner in your Bible, you ought to underline that. You ought to highlight that. You ought to circle it. You ought to put an exclamation point next to it. Jesus didn't stop at Jericho. Jesus was on his way somewhere. And as we know, we studied the Gospel of Luke. We've studied the New Testament. Jesus was on his way to provide grace and mercy for you, for you, for you, for you, and for me. And the only way that was going to happen is he came to save the lost by giving his life on the cross. Jesus was not a good example. Jesus was not an amazing teacher. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is do I understand that, that Jesus was pausing on his way through Jericho and he was resolved to pause but not stop? Because he knew if he didn't go to the cross that he could never say to Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, and today you're saved. If Jesus didn't go to the cross and he lied to Zacchaeus, the worst lie you could possibly offer is to say to somebody, you're okay when they're not. And yet Jesus pauses for Zacchaeus, and he pauses for you, and he pauses for me. And he asks us to put our trust in him for three reasons. The first is because Jesus is resolved to bring grace into our lives. The second is because we are utterly lost and unable to save ourselves. And the third is, is because he comes from God who is gracious and is merciful and is kind. So two questions of application this morning, because I believe that credit, the credibility of Jesus abounds in this, in this passage. My, my question at the outset, I believe, is answered in this passage. This is the most credible statement in all of history. And so I have to ask the question, have I met Jesus? Have I come to him in faith? Am I realizing that my own sin is separating me from him, and the only hope I have is by putting my trust in him? But do you see the resolve of grace that it's for you? that Jesus is offering it to you this morning. I would imagine that many of you have already had that experience in your life, but if you haven't, it's a simple prayer. Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm that actively sinful person. I'm lost. I need a Savior. You promised to be that. Be my Savior. It is absolutely that simple. But for those of us that have made that decision and are living our lives by faith, I think the, the, the key here is in the first verse as well. Is there pausing, the type of pausing that Jesus did, is that evident in my life? And by that, I simply mean this. Jesus didn't have to stop and spend time with Zacchaeus. He chose to do that because he knew Zacchaeus was lost. As I go through my day, and I would guess as you go through your day, whether it's in your classroom at school or it's in your office or it's in your sales call or the person you're sitting next to on the plane tomorrow as you go on, on your next business trip or, or on spring break, somebody might, might meet on the beach, are you going to pause long enough? Am I going to pause long enough to engage with them in the question of salvation? Am I going to see the, the, the work of God in my life, not just to be celebrated for me, but to be shared with others? 
I think that that Green Tree Community Church is a place where we try to pause every Sunday and point people to Christ. But then we leave here and we spend, the, except for those of us that are on staff, we as a church spend the vast majority of our time someplace besides here, right? In offices and schools and families and in neighborhoods and in sports and activities and, 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 and all those places, every one of those places are places where people need somebody to pause long enough to make sure they know the love of Jesus and his grace and his mercy. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that Jesus uttered this credible statement that he is the only one who could come and seek and save the lost, but he did just that in order that we might experience grace and mercy. Father, some of us this morning may see ourselves as Zacchaeus. We, we, we know we're pretty despicable. We know we've actually done some pretty rotten things in our lives. Father, I pray that if that's the case, that you would use this passage to show us there's no one beyond salvation. There's nobody that has the power to out the grace and the mercy of God. Father, I pray that if anyone is feeling hopeless, that you would give them the hope that can only come through you. And Father, for those of us that are tempted to self-righteousness and tempted to forget our sin, and therefore we don't pause, we don't share with others, Father, forgive us. Help us to confess that sin to you and give us a new heart. Give us new eyes. Help us not to be people that grumble. Help us to be people that rejoice and are in awe of the fact that you would save us. And then, Lord, put us in the pathway of folks so we could pause and we could point them to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.